part of it was a healthy respect for my own ego. I don't mind divulging different parts of myself because it's satisfying for me to be known, to be known not just as a celebrity, because I'm not a celebrity, but to be known as who I am, for people to know who I am. It lends meaning to my life. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Are you an expert in something controversial that you'd like to turn into a book or a series of articles or perhaps even a creative business? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins and welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. This week, I caught up with therapist Charlie Widinger. He's the author of the new book, Listening to Ecstasy, The Transformative Power of MDMA. Now, writing about the benefits or the therapeutic benefits of psychedelic substances is a pretty controversial topic, depending on what part of the world you live in. It's something that's gaining more recognition in the United States because psychedelics these days are used to treat war veterans. But it's certainly not a topic that people talk about too much in places like Ireland, for example. It's also a topic that I'd like to write about at some point, but I'm not quite there yet. So I was fascinated to hear from an author who's not afraid to write about something controversial. One of my key takeaways from this particular interview was that when Charlie told friends he was writing about his experiences with MDMA, his friends encouraged him to write the book, but not all of them did. Charlie describes how two of his friends said to him that they shouldn't write the book and that he should go and do something else because they were worried about what would happen to him. And in the interview, Charlie explains what happened next after he decided to ignore their advice. I also asked Charlie about the correlation between psychedelics and meditation and flow state and even the creative process. If that's something you're interested in, I'd recommend you check out any of Sam Harris's work. He has a fantastic book called Waking Up and he has an app of the same name, which is all about meditation. And I use Making Up quite regularly. In fact, I use it nearly every day these days certainly something that can help you if you want to build a meditative practice. Another good takeaway from this book is that Charlie didn't start writing until he was in his mid-60s. He's 72 at the moment and it took him seven years to write this book. So if you're further along in your career but you still want to write something or you want to write about something controversial that happened in your career or in your personal life but you feel like, you know, I've kind of missed my chance to write a book or become an author, well then take heart from Charlie's experiences. He describes his writing process and how he got around some issues that he came across in his work, like writer's block. Now, if you enjoy the show, you can leave a short review on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, or you can simply hit the share button. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can, of course, support the show, and I'll give you discounts on my writing software, courses, and books. Before we get into the show, a quick disclaimer. Interview talks about taking psychedelics and its effects. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't pretend to be one, Psychedelics are also illegal in many countries, so the content in this interview is for informational purposes only. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to hearing about the topic for your book, uh, Charlie. But before we get onto that, could you give listeners an overview of your background and how you came to write a memoir like this? Well, I am a psychotherapist the past 30 years, and what they call a psychonaut the last 50 years. That is somebody who experiments with psychedelic substances. And I've done my growth as a human being through therapy, my own therapy, and also through these substances. And I came to realize here at starting about seven years ago when I started writing the book, 
when I was 65 years old that I had a lot to say about my life and about these substances in general and MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy or molly in particular. And so I wanted to tell the world and sort of come out of the psychedelic closet and tell the world about uh, that and how it had an impact on my life. And also, I wanted to mine my memories for meaning. I wanted to delve back into all my many years of lived experience and extrapolate what is most meaningful and share that with others. So you started writing a book seven years ago? Yes. And did it take you long to write it? It took about six years, yes. Yeah. And was that because you changed the topic a few times or because it was memoir or for some other reason? It's because it was a memoir and I added other aspects to the book because it's not only a memoir, it's also a guide to the safe use of MDMA. And it's also, there's a chapter called Senior High, which is about the aging process. And I have a lot to say about the aging process and how these substances can help. A lot of books like this tend to be written more from a clinical point of view. And I know you have a background as a psychoanalyst, but there tends to be some distance between the author and the topic, whereas yours is quite personal. Like you have a story about you and your partner. I think you're at, you're at Burning Man. Is that right? We're not at Burning Man. We're, we're at a, a similar type of uh, a place, what they call a regional example of a burn, my wife and I. So we had a lot to share about that. Yes. And it's a very personal document. And did you feel comfortable putting personal stories into the book? Did I have trouble getting person putting well, personal yeah, stories? Yeah, well, or did you feel comfortable doing it? Uh, yes. Well, I guess part of it, to be honest here, and since we're talking to other writers, part of it was a healthy respect for my own ego. I don't mind divulging different parts of myself because it's satisfying for me to be known. To be known not just as a celebrity, because I'm not a celebrity, but to be known as who I am, for people to know who I am. It lends meaning to my life. This is your first book? Yes. Did you find it difficult to start writing later on in your career? No. Once I've decided that this is what I wanted to write about, there was only too many ways to start and too many things to write about. And can I go into the writing process for a moment? Please do. I'd love to hear about it. Okay. The best writing advice I ever received was from a teacher, a teacher of writing, many years ago. And he said this. He said, don't think when you write. Just let it flow. And the other piece of advice that I heard, which is not to be taken literally, but you'll get the idea, is write drunk, edit sober. In other words, not, and I wasn't drunk when I wrote, or high, actually, I wasn't high, but to just let it rip, to just let it go, turn the inner editor off and just spill, and spill and spill and spill. And so the first draft was completely unpublishable, but it was all out there. And then the rest of those six years were about honing, perfecting, polishing a hundred times. Yeah, that's, quite, that's a lengthy revision process. What kind of revision steps did you go through over the six years? Could you describe it? Yes, I'm a big believer, Brian, in feedback. So I chose uh, about five people in my life who I respect 
I inspect their intelligence and I respect their opinions. And I gave, I think it was my sixth draft to them to get their feedback and input. Some of them were users of psychedelic substances. Some of them were most definitely not. So I got all kinds of points of view and opinions, but also good critiques about my writing, which I took to heart. And then I had to sort out, you know, which changes they suggested that I would do and which I would not do. But I, uh, I, I'm a big believer in feedback, and I took all their suggestions to heart. Yeah, feedback is particularly helpful during the editing stage, particularly from people who have a different opinion to what the central idea of the book is about. When you were also writing your book over the six or seven years, I presume you were doing other things as well, like working on your, your practice? Yes, Yes, I'm a full-time psychotherapist here in New York City, seeing individuals and couples. When a new author's published their first book, they're often worried about what people will think. Was that a concern for you? Well, absolutely. Uh, not only because it's my first book, but because yeah. the, the topic is so <laughs> topic. controversial. Yeah. And I was concerned about being judged for writing about such a book writing such a book to begin with. As a matter of fact, one or two friends of mine were telling me, do not write this book. One or two friends of mine were- Do uh, not write it. Do not write it. These are friends that I respect, who I, I didn't send them a, uh, a draft of the cop of the book, but they tried to persuade me to not write it because they're very anti-drug. They think all drugs are bad. When they think of psychedelics, they think of heroin, they think of crack, they think they conflate all drugs together. They thought it would be a, a destructive thing to do to write the book. And I knew that they were representative of a segment of the population here in, in America. So I was very concerned about what kind of uh, feedback I would get about the book. When you get feedback like that from somebody who's a friend, and they're telling you not to go ahead with your creative project. Does that put you off? Does that make you hold back? No, but I did take their advice to heart, meaning that the essence of what I really took from that conversation is if I'm going to write about this controversial topic, I better do it responsibly. And I better talk about the risks and the potential pitfalls and really be responsible in the way I talk about something that I'm really actually very enthusiastic about. Which brings me to the central theme of the book. Why did you pick MDMA as the psychedelic substance to focus on? Because it's the most user-friendly. It's not a hallucinogen. You can yeah. be out and about on the street, though, which I wouldn't recommend to a first-time <laughs> user. <laughs> no. um, but you, after you know what it's like, you can be out and about, and people just think you're having a nice day. It's very user-friendly. You, you can use it for in, in many ways, and it's also incredibly versatile. This is a substance that's being experimented on now with uh, veterans from the Iraq war, and it's curing them of PTSD. MDMA is going to become a prescription medication in America in two years. But it's also something that you can use with your husband or wife to reclaim the lost heart of your relationship. And it also can be used, as you know, to dance the night away in wild abandon with a thousand other people at a rave. So it's an incredibly versatile substance. Compared to psilocybin? Yes, uh, psilocybin or magic mushrooms is a hallucinogen. And it also can be used recreationally, but it also can be used for healing. And so it, it's much more limited mass appeal. And I wanted to reach a larger audience. And I think MDMA has potential of having more of a mass appeal. Could you describe some of the benefits that you found through your exploration or through your writing of MDMA? 
Well, those are, those are two different questions. I mean, I could talk all day about the benefits of my exploration with yeah. MDMA. That's what the book is about. It's about all the benefits. The writing of it was really helped me put it into, uh, helped me articulate all of this. And one of the benefits is that MDMA can act as a kind of emotional superglue for couples, as it has for my wife, Shelley, and I and really has helped bond us and deepened our intimacy with each other and added notes of joy and play and fun to our relationship up here in our 60s and now in our 70s. What would you see as the risks apart from the fact that it's illegal? The risks are if you don't know how to do it right. If you don't test it, you have to test it and make sure to use only, only, only pure MDMA. And there are testing kits that you can get, which are not expensive and are legal to get. Also, you need a scale to weigh out the dosage so you know what dosage to take. All this is spelled out in my book. And you also need to adequately hydrate during the course of the high to keep uh, with Gatorade or water because uh, your body is going to need to re replenish and you need to replenish that night with a good night's sleep and the next day have nothing to do so that you can just integrate the experience and you have to take it very seriously. It's a serious medicine and you have to use it right. And if you don't know how to use it, you should not use it at all. Do you think it's something that's become more recognized in the United States for its benefits, like you mentioned how it's been used to help veterans with PTSD? Yes, and uh, people are starting to use it for their relationships as well. And some people are using it in, with group experiences to, as a bonding experience and as a healing experience with other people. Are you familiar with Sam Harris by any chance? He, he's written the book Waking Up and he does talk about the benefits of psychedelics. Who is this? Uh, Sam Harris. He, he, oh, Sam Harris. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I have not read the book, but he's a lot well more, more well-known than I am, and uh, <laughs> I have a lot of uh, respect and admiration for him. One of the things he says is that uh, psychedelics can sometimes be like strapping yourself to a rocket ship, whereas meditation is like getting on a boat. Uh, <laughs> have you found any comparison between meditation and psychedelics? I do meditate, and it is like it's a wonderful boat and helps you uh, be on Earth in a very in a very effective way. Meditation is a good way to integrate a psychedelic experience into your life. But I wouldn't call MDMA like a rocket ship. For me, it's sort of like a hot air balloon that helps me rise above my life for four, five, six hours and get a view, a real perspective on where I've been where I am now, and where I might want to head off to next in my life. So it gives a lot of uh, perspective, and that's one of the benefits of it for me. When I read the literature about MDMA, a lot of proponents talk about how it can help you get into some sort of flow state. And my experiences of flow state are mostly listening to noise, cancelling headphones, and writing or meditating, or perhaps doing some, some sports. Do you find that there is a correlation between flow state and MDMA? Yes. And the effects are accumulative. So uh, over the past 20 years, I've done it about 70 times, four or five times a year or so, sometimes three times a year, sometimes five times a year. And so the effects are, are, have accumulated for me. So it's helped me get in touch with that state. When I'm high on MDMA, I certainly can flow just right out of, from my heart to the person I'm with and speak heart to heart with them and be out of my head. 
or I can dance. I love to dance, even though I'm 72 years old. And I wouldn't say I'm much to look at when I dance, but I love it. And it's a lot of fun. And that's a way, and I've learned that even when I'm sober, or especially when I'm sober, dancing is a way of getting into that flow state and getting out of my head. Yeah, I agree. I agree. What about when you're you know, engaged in writing or the creative process? Do you have any rituals you use to help you get into flow state? Good question. No, no real ritual. The only substance I've ever used to, to help me write is really dark, bitter chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the uh, caffeine effect and its mild antidepressant effects, and it helps me flow right, right, right onto the uh, page. But then I, and sometimes when I wrote, I uh, also would have some music going, like Enya or some kind of soft music without lyrics to help me in, get into the mood. For the book, you have a lot of personal stories and you grew up in Andy Kaufman, is that right? Yes. You know, did you know, him, did you know him well? Yes. Uh, yeah, we were, uh, we were friends and uh, he was quite the rascal. I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> when you were writing the book, you've also included uh, pictures from some of your experiences. Did you have like, like I'm sure you had a photo library you could go back to, but did you have any journals that you were able to refer to, to pull, draw back on your memories? No, but I have a pretty sharp long-term memory. Don't ask me what I had for breakfast this morning, but I know what I did 30 years ago and 50 years ago and 60 years ago and even 65 years ago. I have a pretty good memory. I, I made sure of holding on to these memories uh, and especially the meaningful ones. So I was just delving into it. But it, just to further answer your question, I do my best thinking when I first wake up in the morning and I'm lying there in bed and sometimes I'll realize, oh, I could write about this in the book and I could put a sentence together this way. So I'll, I'll keep a pen and paper right by my bed. So when I first wake up, if these thoughts and ideas hit me, I will write them down. And that has helped me write the book. Mm, yeah, that's what I do as well. I have a similar process. When you had the book ready, did you have an ideal reader? You were talking about this just before we hit record, who you want to pick up the book? Yes, I wanted to hit reach readers within the psychedelic community in New York, in New York, and in and, and in America and anywhere in the world because we are everywhere and there are millions of us. Uh, although, of course, for legal reasons, we keep ourselves quiet. Although that's now more people are coming out of the closet. But I also wanted to reach people of other generations, especially people who might have used or misused psychedelics as uh, when they were younger, like in school, and then maybe had a bad experience and put it all aside. And, and to let them know that if you can learn how to use these substances with respect and carefully, they can be of great benefit throughout the entire adult lifespan. What has the reaction been like from readers or from those who know you since the book was out? surprisingly positive. I was lucky that the book came out at a time when the war on drugs is being criticized and pretty much going to be is being dismantled in America slowly but surely with legalization of cannabis and decriminalization of many substances and so people are more open to taking a, a look at these drugs, I, I prefer the term medicines, than they ever were. So lucky to be, have the book come out at this time. So the reaction to the book has been surprisingly positive, at least so far. Any particular strategies that are working quite well for you to sell copies of the book? 
Yes, interviews like this. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> uh, since November, yeah. when the book came out, it's now what, mid-April? I've had about 35 interviews with podcasters uh, yeah. around the country and around the world, and people also writing for some online magazines. I was on at Forbes.com uh, and Reason Magazine and a few others. And so uh, these have helped. Also, people mentioning me on their Twitter feeds or Instagram has helped with sales as well. And during COVID lockdown, I had a launch. I took advantage that it was COVID and I did a launch over Zoom. Okay, how did that go? Well, it went brilliantly because I had 200 people in the audience and uh, psychedelic celebrities, American celebrities in the psychedelic world on the screen with me talking about a time that MDMA changed their life. And how did you get people to actually attend that launch? I put the word out every way I could with my email lists. And I have a, a YouTube channel, Twitter, Instagram, and relied on friends to help me get the word out as well. Could you describe a time MDMA changed your life? I could describe about 70. Uh, <laughs> anyone that comes to mind? <laughs> uh, the times that are most impactful to me, Brian, are the times where I sat with my wife, Shelley, and we, especially early on in our relationship, we started 20, we got together 21 years ago in midlife. And we realized that we not only had our physical chemistry between us and our love for each other, but that this, this medicine was the icing on our cake, that this was another kind of chemistry that we could share, that our bodies and our physical chemistry for four or five or six or seven hours could be exquisitely tuned to each other. And we could enter the gates of heaven for this period of time. It was a peak experience where we had a peek into what it's like in heaven or what it must be like in heaven, or, or so we, we imagined. And when you have experiences like this with a partner, it helps you bond with them in a, way that, in a way that's even deeper, at least for us, than we could have done sober, because it's a whole other level of bonding. And that really changed us. It really set us on a course of an increased course of gratitude for, uh, for each other, generosity towards each other and towards the outside world as well. Fantastic. Yeah, and Ireland is more known as it's a drug that's popular mostly in nightclubs uh, mm -hmm. and festivals. Yes, and it can be used in that way. And if it's used responsibly, I have no problem with it. It can be used if it's not abused and, and you shouldn't drink when you're on MDMA, though some people do, unfortunately, and that's where you can get into trouble. But uh, we really believe here that, uh, by we, I mean my wife and I, that fun, play, and joy can potentially be transformative experiences. And to dance the night away in wild abandon with 100 or 500 other people can be a joyful and mind-expanding and heart-expanding and heart-opening experience. You also talk about having the next day off to internalize experiences that you've been through. And MDMA is known for having quite a come down over the course of a couple of days, what, what advice would you offer to somebody who's experiencing that? Well, there's a section in my book about how to avoid what is known as the Tuesday blues after the Saturday night experience. We've had, we're in our senior years, we've done this about 70 times, as I've said. We have never had a bad come down, ever, because we use 
we follow the protocols. We'll do it on a Saturday. We won't do it on a Sunday where I have to go to work the next day. We'll sleep it off. I will sleep maybe at, at my age, maybe 10 hours that night, maybe even 11 hours that night. And the next day, I just have an afterglow. Also, I'm replenishing my body with uh, liquids and, and good food, healthy food that night and the next day. And there's an over-the-counter supplement that's cheap and legal to obtain in any health food store or, or pharmacy called 5-HTP, which helps replenish the serotonin that your body gets drained of uh, with MDMA. And that, is, that has helped us as well. Okay, okay. It's good, good advice. What about, you mentioned that you've taken it 70 times over, I guess, 72 years. So th- no, that's, that's not over that 20 years. Oh, so I'm sorry. Uh, that's not that frequent then. Yeah, you wouldn't be taking MDMA when you're when you're five years old. <laughs> Definitely not. But like, so, so you don't take it that frequently from the sounds of it. That's right. I believe more, uh, less is more. And the less frequently we do it, the more impactful it is. And we also moderate with the dose. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And in terms of going back to the book itself, do you will you do any follow on work in term with your clients in terms of coaching or course or training? Yes. As especially as MDMA becomes legal, I hope to integrate it into my practice because I could do six months or a year's work of good, effective couples counseling in a day if I could use MDMA with them. I would stay sober for that day, of course, but they would do the medicine and I could guide them through it. And it would be a big boon, a a big advantage for these couples. But I don't do that yet. I can't. Um, I I wouldn't want to lose my license. But I look forward to that and also appearing at conferences and and traveling uh, because things are starting to open up here now and I'll be traveling in the fall, giving readings, speaking at psychedelic societies uh, and readings at bookstores. When you're ready to travel again, do you think you will use the book as a calling card or are you going to just try and promote the book in itself? I'll use the book as a calling card, absolutely. There's a growing interest and curiosity about these substances, at least in this country and in some spots around the world. I don't know about uh, Dublin or Ireland, uh, but certainly in Lisbon and in parts of uh, Australia and uh, in London and in Prague and Berlin uh, and other cities, there's interest in these substances, Tel Aviv and other cities around the world. I hope to visit all of them in time. Yeah, hopefully when life goes back to normal. Unfortunately, we're still in lockdown at time recording this interview, at least in Ireland. And then just the the fact that the book is a memoir itself, did you find writing a memoir therapeutic for you? Yes. I have no children. So my way, this is my way of giving back all that I've received in the world and from people and all I've learned. This is my way of uh, saying thank you. So uh, it's it's been very... uh, very meaningful and gratifying to have these stories that are so dear to my heart and I think that can really open people's eyes to have them all out there. Was it difficult to get a publisher for a book like this? It was hard. I got a uh, a terrific agent at the beginning, somebody who did uh, Barack Obama's first book, and I was very excited. She sent it out to all the top publishers in America, and one by one, they all turned it down. It was too hot for them to handle. 
And frankly, to be fully honest, some of them gave a feedback saying, well, this is not as polished a writer as we tend to publish. So there was that. I mean, you know, it's the first book for me. It's my second occupation. So she dropped me after that. And then I went marketing the book uh, to myself and through a contact, uh, lucked out at this publishing house, which has been around for 50 years, called Inner Traditions Publishing, that they publish psychedelic books. And it's a traditional publisher uh, and psychedelic books and occult books and all, all holistic health and healing and spiritual books. And they just grabbed it and uh, snapped it up. And it's been a terrific experience with them. It's a, they're a wonderful publisher. Do you have any plans to write another book? I have time, but I don't have the inspiration yet. I mean, I have all kinds of ideas sort of percolating beneath the surface, but I can't and won't write another book unless I'm really inspired because that's otherwise it would just be a chore. Because writing, as you know, is hard work. It really is. Writing is rewriting, <laughs> and so you have to really love it. Is it harder than being a psychoanalyst? No, uh, being a therapist is difficult too, but they're both learning processes. <laughs> they're just different, but they're both creative processes. Yeah, one last question, bit off tangents. Do you believe journaling is a type of therapy? Journaling, absolutely, yes. And I even kept a journal about writing the book. Maybe that oh, well. then maybe that will be my second book. <laughs> yeah, very, very matter. Yeah, no, I journal quite a lot. I I think it's quite it's a useful form of therapy that I recommend to anybody who likes working with the written word. Absolutely, Charlie. Where can people find your book or find more information about you? Well, they can uh, go to Amazon, or uh, if they don't like, sometimes people don't uh, like Amazon. Uh, they want a smaller company. They can go to the Simon and Schuster website, which is my publisher's distributor, and punch in uh, "listening to ecstasy." Thank you, Charlie. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store or sharing the show on Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you're listening. More reviews, more ratings and more shares will help more people find the Become a Writer Today podcast. And did you know for just a couple of dollars a month, you could become a Patreon for the show? Visit patreon.com forward slash become a writer today or look for the support button in the show notes. Your support will help me record, produce and publish more episodes each month. And if you become a Patreon, I'll give you my writing books, discounts on writing software and on my writing courses. Thank you.